This message comes from NPR sponsor Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. Thanks to Dana-Farber's foundational work, protein degradation can target cancer-causing proteins and destroy them right inside the cell. Learn more at DanaFarber.org slash everywhere. Now, when I say ballroom, what comes to mind? Is it this? Or maybe it's this. Well, ballroom is also this. Ballroom's roots stretch back to at least the 1920s, but it reached new heights in the 70s and 80s as a space where members of New York City's Black and Latinx LGBTQ community gathered and celebrated. Marcel Christian Labeja is widely credited with hosting New York's first Black drag ball in 1962. And by 1990, ballroom culture was being referenced by Madonna. Today, ballroom culture is pop culture, from RuPaul's Drag Race to Beyonce's latest album, Renaissance. After the break, we dig into the history of ballroom culture and what it looks like today. I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. Back with more in just a moment. When voters talk during an election season, we listen. We ask questions, we follow up, and we bring you along to hear what we learned. Get closer to the issues, the people, and your vote at the NPR Elections Hub. Visit npr.org slash elections. Let's get into the conversation and welcome our guests. Joining us to walk us through the history of ballroom is Ricky Tucker. He's a culture critic and the author of, and the category is, Inside New York's Vogue House and Ballroom Community. Also with us is Michael Robertson. He's an adjunct professor at the New School and Union Theological Seminary in New York City. Welcome to you both. Now, Ricky, I want to come to you first. What do you remember about your first time watching a ball? Oh, I mean, I remember being very scared. Um, it was shortly after I met Michael Robertson, and I had some of my um, co, uh, co-students from his class called Vogology um, agree to go with me to our first ball. It was in East Brooklyn. It was a kiki ball. and Okay, it's a kiki ball. Uh, for the lack of a better term, sort of the minor leagues, what uh-huh. the younger kids do until they get major. And um, and I know everybody declined. Or like everybody said they were going to come and then they couldn't at the last minute. So I was like just frightened. Like, why, why, why were you scared? Because, well, because I knew from our class um, that Michael and my other gay father, uh, Robert Simber, taught that, um, you know, just because I'm black and I'm gay and a man doesn't mean that I have an automatic ticket to entry. Um, And so we were very aware in that class of our uh, capacity to appropriate the culture, no matter who we are. Um, And also... Um, you know, I'm subdued. I'm a writer. I do a lot of observing, but I'm tall and I stick out like a sore thumb. So those two things kind of uh, conflict with one another. And I, I just didn't want to get in the way. And I didn't know what to expect, even though I'd been thinking about it for a while. So um, 
So I went and it was just love. I was, it was live love uh, and um, free food, which I needed as a <laughs> the time. Um, and uh, it was just wonderful. It was wonderful. Um, you know, yeah. it, it, it was every, it was everything and more. And so um, it was, and it was nice to see the nurturing and the performance that I had felt in intimate spaces um, on the stage. Yeah. Renor, how did you first get into ballroom? Um, um, okay, we're having a little trouble with Renor's line. There's an echo. We're going to get fix that and get back to you, Renor. Michael, explain what's special about the energy and environment in a ballroom. What's special? I mean, I think plain and simple ballroom is special. I, I oftentimes, and Ricky and I talk about this, I oftentimes tend to not lodge ballroom through a queer lens or a queer historical lens, first and foremost, but through a, an African-American lens. Mm. It is absolutely Sort of the the part of not only the black cultural production, but also the, the 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 historical black struggle for freedom. So all of those things, you know, converge convene at one time at a ball, right? So it is entertaining, is is heightened. The energy in many ways, the call and response is very much like black church. Unlike if you go to a Broadway play, my colleague Robert Simmer talks about this, where you sit in a seat and this is your space, and that is. The performer, the performer and the audience are one and the same. So all of those things. Um, it can be highly fashionable. Um, it can be highly, there's oftentimes highly tense politics. Um, it, some can be long and drawn out. Some can be just very energetic. Um, some can feel like you're coming. I remember when in New York City, we had the very first ball inside after the COVID restrictions. And it was, it felt like not only homecoming, mm-hmm. um, but we knew that we just came out of something that was both global and historical. And as black folk have always, as New Yorkers have always been in relationship to crisis, we made it through. Mm-hmm. So that felt like one of those moments we knew. For people who are unfamiliar, just explain what happens at a ball. What all is going on there, Michael? A lot of things. And so you can imagine, and, and if you look at Paris is burning, of course, Jenny Livingston documentary. The, the 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 scene then is different than many ways than now because it's more global, it's bigger. But you know, I could just think about the question you asked, Ricky. I could just think about oftentimes when you get out of a car or you get out of a train and you walking down the street to the space where the ball is going to happen. You can feel that, right? Mm-hmm. You can hear sometimes the music. You can see people outside. Um, you can hear the commentator sounding like a big preacher and the sports announcer all at one time. Um, you know, you, you know, you pay to come in. The oftentimes tables, the tables signify different houses sitting at tables. You know, when I was younger, there was no elevated runway. It was just a floor. Mm-hmm. Uh, all of that meshed. Um, just it it can it can feel like for people who are so marginalized, it can feel like for your first time, what the f all and freedom and heaven at the same time. Right? Yeah. So it is what the f I can't believe mm-hmm. and freedom and heaven all at the same time. You mentioned Paris is is burning, and that's the 1990 documentary. It's described as the modern encyclopedia of ballroom culture. And here's a clip of Dorian Corey in that documentary. You know what a house is. I'll tell you what a house is. A house is a gay street gang. Now, where street gangs get their rewards from street fights, a gay house, street fights at a ball. 
and you street fighter the ball by walking in the catacombs. Okay, let's go over some terminology. They mentioned houses, and that's this kinship system in ballroom. Houses are a big part of that. Uh, tell us how that works, Michael. Um, and so, you know, you were talking about Marcel Christian, pioneer, right? Um, and there's a particular moment, if you watch on YouTube, a video called The Legendary Crystal Abasia. It's a Black trans woman who resisted colorism, um, racism, and pageant circuit, and who's credited into it with her in helping to shift drag ball to house ball. Drag ball just meant only trans people participated to house balls. A guy named Phil Black, who was the only African-American drag performer who had a screen at his guild card. And so they have a ball named after her. And then she creates the very first house in 1968 called the House of La Beja. So you're seeing the this, this scene politically and theologically move from the individual, the trans, right, to the house of collective. And at first, houses was just mother and daughter. So they were named after particular five women, well, five women, even though this person emerges at the same time, but she's in the house of La Beja, which is Pebble La Beja, Dorian Corey, who you just referenced, Avis Pendarvis, Paris Dupree, and Duchess LeWong. And Duchess LeWong is still, the only one still alive, she's in the house of Ebony. Mm -hmm. But it was in 1973 when the very first gay man participated in Walk the Ball in an Erskine Christian category. He walked most models magazine face. And when he walked and other men began to walk, Junior LaBeige and David Altimer, R. R. Chanel created the house in 76, the house of Ebony is created in 78. More men begin to participate and you saw the construction of a house, mother, father, and children. Hmm. I want to talk about that structure, though, because, Ricky, houses are not just about what happens at the balls. They're also surrogate families for many young people in the ballroom scene. And, and Paris is Burning illustrates that. How significant is it to belong to a house? Um it's super significant. You know, I you know, I've never actually belonged to a house, but I've received the love of almost having been. Um, when I came up um, about 12 years ago and met Michael and uh, Robert, um, Michael was the father of the House of Garçon. And so in, as him being my gay father there, all of those folks ended up being my brothers and sisters. So, you know, Pony, uh, Twiggy, Gar uh, Pucci Garçon, all those folks are, are my family. And for someone like me, um, who 12 years ago had just fallen out with my father, who was infamously uh, homophobic um, and told me he would kill me if, if he ever found that out. Mm -hmm. Um, in this weird rhetorical, this weird hypothetical that was very face-to-face. -face. Um, it was everything to find two gay men, particularly a Black gay man, um, who was a scholar of something like ballroom and where the the baseline was gay and, and trans. Coming up, we talk more about what the ballroom scene means to people in the LGBTQ community. We'll be back with more in just a moment. Stay with us. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, one of the largest recipients of NIH funding. Dana-Farber scientists played a substantial role in developing more than half the cancer drugs approved by the FDA in the last five years, data through 2022. They've made one advanced cancer discovery after another for over 75 years. Dana-Farber Cancer Institute is changing lives everywhere. More at DanaFarber.org slash everywhere. Support for NPR and the following message come from the Lemelson Foundation, dedicated to improving lives through invention, innovation, and climate action. 
This is my voice. I can tell you a lot about me, and I'm not changing it for anyone. In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of NPR episodes centered on Black experiences. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get your podcasts. Let's get back to the conversation by adding a new voice. Renore 007 is a ballroom performer based in New York City and joins us now. Renore, how did you first get involved in ballroom? Well, so that's a long story. Um, so I first really discovered ballroom when I was around 16 or 17. Um, I was unfortunately homeless at the time. Um, just because, you know, being Albanian, being Muslim and being queer doesn't really align with like the Albanian cultural norms if you will and so um there was this one night where i was you know sleeping at washington square park and this femme queen approached me and i honestly i hope she's well out in this world but she basically um housed me for a couple of months and was feeding me and encouraged me to go dancing more because that's what i really wanted to do and then through that um, is how I was exposed to the Kiki scene, which is the, a sub like community mm-hmm. of the ballroom community. It, it's mainly meant for LGBTQIA plus youth. Um, so after that is when I really started going more and more and more. And um, after that, I was um, just enamored and I really wanted to learn more and do more within the community and um honestly just grow my knowledge of what ballroom means to me and what ballroom does for people. Um, I feel like oftentimes now, these days, it's really easy to kind of get lost in translation just because of how popularized it is. You know, we see it every day on social media, whether it's TikTok or Instagram or whether it's Pose, Legendary, etc. So I feel like now there has been a whole, like, flooded gate open full of new people who don't necessarily understand the importance and the impact it has on people's lives and how crucial it is for for uh people who are part of the community um but yeah after that i really started coming back and started walking more as of last year um i'm so thankful to all my mentors and all my siblings who i've met along the way who have helped me grow in my, in my categories and who continue to push me to do better, of course. Um, so, yeah. You talked about what drew you into ballroom, and I heard two things. One, it was a way of connecting you to a community you needed, and then it was also a way to connect you to something you love to do, and that was dance. Uh, on the dance side of it specifically, I mean, what, <laughs> what did it feel like in, in your body the first time you walked? Do you remember? I do. Um, so the very first time I walked was for a hands performance category. And me walking New Way, I do focus a lot on arms control, which is just, you know, using my arms, whether it is cutting through space with lines or framing my face or making a wide arrangement of boxes using my arms or honestly dislocating my shoulders. (laughs) So when I was walking the category in the moment, I just remember feeling this overwhelming urge of like liberty. Um, And it was something I had never felt before. I used to dance ballet before. So even in that art form, it felt constrictive. And I feel like dance for a lot of people is so liberating and it's so freeing. 
So even me being in the ballet world, and I love ballet, don't get me wrong, I just felt that something was missing. And I feel like once I stepped into ballroom, being surrounded with more people who are queer and who are gender nonconforming and or trans, um, it gave me the push to like, I don't know, just be in a space where I'm seen for who I am and I am not afraid to be authentically myself. Um, so yeah. Mm. It, it's interesting, Michael, I see you nodding as Renor is, is talking and what I'm picking up from all of you is that these rooms are largely spaces where there is an absence of fear. Is that, is that accurate? I wouldn't say an absence of fear. Okay. Um, I would say it's a room full of courage. Oh, okay. Explain Mm -hmm. that. Because you move in spite of, right? And so this absence of fear can sometimes signify fearless. And you can use fearlessness as a strategy, right? So if I'm walking a category to some degree, uh, I may, when I'm battling someone, come across as fearless, right? That's a strategy. But, you know, um, but you, you go there in some ways, and you go into a new space, and even if it's a familiar space, there's a fear that that still pops up. Mm. But you move in spite of courage. I remember in the '90s, and even in the 2000s, of course, early '80s. But you, you people, particularly in New York City, you got on a train, right? Came from uptown. You dressed a particular kind of way. Now, I never had to do this because of my body size, but you dress a particular kind of way. And then when you got off at the train near wherever the ball was or the club. You went to a parking lot and or the McDonald's or Burger King and changing the bathroom to put on the clothes you were going to wear because that was, you know, safety is not an academic skill, right? It, it was real life trying to be safe and remain safe. And so you get on a train, you're afraid. You get off the train, you're afraid. You walk into the bar, you're afraid. You get in the space, you're afraid. But you do that in spite of and it's courage. Mm-hmm. Uh, Renor, you mentioned categories, and I know you walk New Wave, New Wave Vogue, Runway, and Hands Performance. Explain a little bit more about what a category is in ballroom. Um, So category is just different segments within the ball, right? I think within ballroom, um, when we're thinking of voguing in general, I'm never thinking of voguing as like three different category like three different branches if you will like I don't think of voguing as there's new way old way and vogue femme I think voguing is one universal like art form but I think when we bring voguing to ballroom is when we have to like separate it and kind of like give people their different flowers um categories for me are more so just you know because I'm exclusive or I mainly do walk new way I am mainly paying attention to the theme of the ball and what the cat or what my category is really calling for. Um, I think a beautiful example is the fashion rocks ball next on the 24th of this month, um, where the entire ball is fashion inspired, meaning all the different categories are calling for something different. So specifically for new way, it's calling for bring it coming from a foreign country, and how does the how does the person who wants to walk interpret that? Does that mean like you're bringing a flag of your country and walking with that? Does that mean you're bringing your culture close to the ball and walking with that? It's all these different nuances and things that really dictate how the function is going to look and how the function is going to feel and what the vibe of it all is. 
And it's so beautiful to witness as well because every person who is walking is just bringing something different. And the energy they're emulating is different. The way that their outfit or their effect, as we call it, is making them feel is different. So it's all these different like moving pieces that really tie it all together at the end. Ricky, as you started digging into the history of ballroom for your book, again, it's called, and the category is Inside New York's Vogue House and Ballroom Community. Was there anything that surprised you? Um, not really, because I'd, re- I'd just been thinking about it um, so much. I mean, I think what ended up surprising me was, you know, I had North Star by my um, ballroom family, and that was du- twofold. Make this an indictment of capitalism, which I live that, <laughs> and then and then make it un- unapologetically Black, which is, I can easily do that. And um, And so I had gone in thinking... I'm going to really give it to capitalism, you know, and I did. But by the end of the book, one of the questions was, well, until we dismantle this beast, how does winning, what does winning look like um, for those of us who are trying to retain our narratives? Um, And a lot of it is, you know, I talked to Twiggy um, about this and Twiggy was like, you know, I wasn't able, I was always told when I was young that it could not put ballroom on a resume. And now she can. Is that a victory? And and capitalism plays a huge key in that. We're discussing the history of ballroom culture. When we come back, we discuss how ballroom has made its mark on pop culture. Back with more in just a moment. Stay with us. This message comes from Capital One, offering commercial solutions you can bank on. Now more than ever, your business faces unique challenges and opportunities. That's why Capital One offers a comprehensive suite of financial services, all tailored to your short and long-term goals. Backed by the strength and stability of a top 10 commercial bank, their dedicated experts work with you to build lasting success. Explore the possibilities at CapitalOne.com slash commercial, a member FDIC. This message comes from NPR sponsor Viore. Jump into a new perspective on performance apparel. Viore makes products that stand the test of time and hope to inspire others to live vibrant, healthy lives, empowering your best life in clothing that can be worn for just about any activity from running to yoga. Visit viore.com slash NPR to receive 20% off your first purchase and enjoy free shipping on any U.S. orders over $75. Discover the versatility of Viore clothing. Now let's get back to ballroom. Beyonce is on tour, bringing what she calls the house of renaissance to crowds across the world. I want to talk about how ballroom is referenced in pop culture. And one of the first moments that happened was with Madonna's 1990 hit Vogue. Michael, when the song Vogue came out, what conversations were had about what it meant for ballroom? So it's easy for me now to have to have a critique, but it wasn't a critique then. I mean, partly, you know, when you are a marginal marginal community and the politics of wanting to be seen and read legible is real, real serious. And so having Madonna do Vogue, this white woman had two 
um, Latinx ballroom folks or pioneers, Jose and Lewis, in the video, it felt something, right? It felt like something, this notion, oh my God, I can't believe we, we've made it. And it, you, you, it's hard to believe looking at now that then we thought, oh my, this can never ever happen having two, you know, Latinx queer men or, or gay men in a video. So it felt good then. But, you know, to your wonderful point around the reference to ballroom, the very first one, she still's not a reference to ballroom. Ballroom referenced Madonna doing Vogue. Madonna's never still today have referenced that that's where she got the cultural production from, right? And so it felt good. What Ballroom was able to do was take the nationalization of it and to begin to organize other um, geographical regions. When I first started walking balls about 94, 95, there was only four cities. There was only uh, New York, DC, Philadelphia, and I was in the Philadelphia scene, and Baltimore. Now, since, we can't, we can't even sort of quantify. I mean, so yeah, the last thing I said about that, which is very interesting, again, what we tend to do, who we give ownership to, right? Um, even in feminist circles, right? Again, to Black women. Jody Wiley had Derek Extrava and Muhammad Omni in their video, and her video, and so did Queen Latifah. Um, of course, they didn't call it Vogue. They didn't reference that that's what they were doing. And they don't get the credit for, in many ways, showcasing it first for Madonna. And then there's La India, whose song that you play, Love and Happiness, my house song, who also had Vogue in, in her videos as well. So, Ricky, you have your own personal memory of Madonna's Vogue. Tell us about that. Yeah, I mean, I, re- I was eight when that song came out. And I remember um, my mom and her best friend, Reggie, who actually um, was in a, a, in a house, um, come to find out later. Um, they, uh, they were both from New York, but in North Carolina. And so that gives you, um, as a kid growing up in North Carolina, you're privy to a lot of, lot of uh, sort of metropolitan things. And when Madonna's Vogue, they were getting ready to go to the club. Madonna's Vogue came on. I was sitting on the edge of the tub, trying not to be noticed. And uh, Reggie said to my mom, who we called Trixie at the time, he said, Trix, do you see what this heifer is doing? And my mom said, yes, honey, she thinks she's one of the children. And that just stuck with me as an eight-year-old, that there was some sort of, um, uh, like, I don't know, appropriation, if you could call it, or... Um, a facsimile was happening and before our eyes, and um, and that stayed with me, and that influenced my interest in the community um, hugely. Now, Paris is burning. Also came out in 1990, and how significant is it that the film came out so close to the release of Vogue, Ricky? I mean, I think it talks. It speaks to sort of the um, power of platforms, of particular platforms, because it is a documentary and it was an independent film at the time. You could only really see on um, local uh, television here in New York City. Um, I don't know what what what's significant about that year per se, but maybe it was just we were at some sort of cultural intersection where it was okay to be that queer without saying it. Mm. Um, and that black without saying it and that Latin without saying it. Michael, um, I'd love to hear your thoughts too. Just that again, who gets to tell your story? So again, this is through the lens of two white women, right? Mm-hmm. One who identifies, I guess, um, Jenny Livingston as queer and then Madonna, who Madonna is. Um, interesting, the number two, right? So I said in 87, two black women did it first and then these two white women. The thing about Paris is burning, again, I can have, have a critique all day long now. Right. Back then I was 
Yes, yeah, Ricky's wonderful point. You know, we went to Blockbuster Video, got it, and you was—I could not believe we was watching this, and uh, it was—it was—it was a revelation. It was all of those things, what have you. Um, I do remember certain tropes that kind of bothered me, and yet it still was revelation. It is one of the most watched documentaries in history. It is, and if you go to an academy, cultural studies. Queer studies, gender studies is on the curricula. It is artistically wonderful. It's just cultural exploitative. Uh, Renor, beyond just bringing attention to ballroom, big celebrities, you know, like Beyonce, they're also profiting from ballroom culture. As someone living and working in that space, how does that make you feel? There are a lot of different nuances. I do want to tie back to like to Madonna, for example, because I do view her as a culture vulture. I think earlier when I had come across the song and I had just come across the community, I was like, oh my God, like she did this, that and the other. But then like really thinking about it, I was like, she didn't even hire black trans women who are the pioneers of this entire community. Um, and on top of that, um, the people that she chose to hire are light, lighter skin, so it, it is more appealing to the wider audience because lighter skin people will make white people feel more at ease and will deem them less threatening. Um, and especially now, for example, with Beyonce, well, we can source ballroom back to the we can we can source all the magic that we see in the world, whether it's pop culture, whether it is hip hop, whether it is fashion, whether it is music. It all comes from the ballroom scene. So it, um, in one way, in one hand, now it makes me happy that we are you know getting the platform and getting the opportunities that we need. But the other, it's also um, how do we keep our community our community and not give it away for a check. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Well, Ricky, I do wonder how that the popularization of ballroom and how it's being used in, in pop culture, how that bumps up against your critique of capitalism. It's I mean, the thesis of the book, if if um, reduced to one sentence is it's complicated. <laughs> like, I, you know, it's, as soon as I thought I knew something, there's a nuance to it that negates that. So it really highlights, you know, ballroom. Um, as paradoxical, you know, if it's not in terms of gender, um, in terms of high and low economic standing, you know, sort of the implementation of fashion as the name of houses, um, yet it's breaking down a lot of these systems in in many ways. Um, so it's very, very, very complicated. But what I've been doing lately is sort of beautiful minding, putting up on a wall sort of everybody's approach and seeing the gradient of what's okay and what's not, right? Because there's no sort of end game for that. Um, And mind you, the room is always divided. Half the people I talked to about Madonna in the book were like, oh yeah, it it helped us out. She's great. I love her. Which as if those two things, I love her and I critique her can't exist in the same space. But, and the other half of folks are like, you know, no, she's a heifer, right? Like just like my mom and Reg. So like, it's very, it's just very, very complicated and you can't extract capitalism from the conversation. So a lot of things that come up are ownership of narrative um, that Michael uh, sort of referenced earlier, who owns the story. Um, you know, we're thinking about a documentary um, or a docuseries for the book and the category is um, when you look at my, Ryan Murphy's pose, um, folks from Ballroom were brought in as choreographers and consultants, which means they didn't have production credits, which means they don't get royalties. So 
in when I am leading the charge, I've brought in my father and my family from ballroom as producers from ground level up. That is the mandate. Um, so I, I try to look at it more in terms of progress as opposed to it was done badly and it was done properly because I don't know if we'll ever get that carrot on that stick. One of the things that really stands out to me is the way we've seen ballroom come into mainstream culture through language. You you hear it a lot. (laughs) Uh, People saying serving, slay, eating, reading. And at the same time, we see across the country legislation specifically targeting LGBTQ people. You know, Michael, how, how do you make sense of the way those things are happening alongside each other? Because that's what they all, that's, that's always sort of the, the sort of chronological thing that happens. If you think back, you think back of Linda B. Johnson, right? The, the sort of relationship both with the voters, uh, uh, the uh, Civil Rights Act and Voting Rights Act, the blowback was Richard Nixon, right? So anytime it looks like uh, marginalized people have access to power, there's a blowback, right? Then you had Jimmy Carter. Who, who was close to poor people in his legislation. The blowback was Ronald Reagan and George Bush. Then you have Bill Clinton, and the blowback was George Bush II, and then Barack Obama, this notion that we're in a post-racial society, and the blowback is Donald Trump. So the unfortunate part is that when you see part of progress to some degree is the resemblance of that is bodies, right? So the, the, the whether it's through legislation, whether it's through the murdering and the brutalization of Black trans folk. Um, and so they, that always makes sense. The thing, though, I and, and it's so easy just to look at those things, right? What's more difficult is people believing that if they use their language, churches believing that if they celebrate or support marriage equality, that they're no longer homophobic. Right. And so that to me is a more dangerous thing. Last thing I say about that, I remember watching, I think it was CNN and the political, not Don Lemon, does it makes sense, but the political commentators used the word tea and shade in the same sentence. And so it spoke to me around not only sort of the language becoming more accessible, but probably people who were using the language had no idea its etymology, right? Its historical reference of what happened. Well, you've said, Michael, that ballroom has something to say. What does ballroom have to say? You know, my my coining that with my colleague Robert Simber had everything. It's a three part. So it's, ballroom has something to say to teach the world over about what it really means to be human in the struggle for freedom in the face of catastrophe, because it is a community that is on intimate terms with death and brutality over and over and over again. In the U.S. context, predominantly Black and Latinx. So all of those, those communities in which it comes from, Black, Latinx, LGBT, all those things, all those disparities are converging and convening at one time in this community. But just like Black folk, right, that's why logically an African-American link. Just like Black folk, we've always been um, creative around our survival skills when we're at the brink of an island. 
That's Michael Robertson. He's an adjunct professor at the New School and Union Theological Seminary in New York City. Also with us, Renore 007. She's a ballroom performer in Walk's New Way Vogue, Runway, and Hands Performance in New York City. And Ricky Tucker. He's a culture critic and the author of, and the category is, Inside New York's Vogue, House, and Ballroom Community. Michael, Renore, Ricky, thank you so much for speaking with us. It was a pleasure. Today's producer was Jorhalina Manarea. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening. We'll talk again tomorrow. This is 1A. This message comes from NPR sponsor Mint Mobile. From the gas pump to the grocery store, inflation is everywhere. So Mint Mobile is offering premium wireless starting at just $15 a month. To get your new phone plan for just $15, go to mintmobile.com switch. This message comes from NPR sponsor Rosetta Stone, an expert in language learning for 30 years. Right now, NPR listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership to 25 different languages for 50% off. Learn more at rosettastone.com NPR. It's a high-stakes election year, so it's not enough to just follow along. You need to understand what's happening so you are fully informed come November. Every weekday on the NPR Politics Podcast, our political reporters break down important stories and backstories from the campaign trail so you understand why it matters to you. Listen to the NPR Politics Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.